Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be revisiting and celebrating the career of the marvelous Elaine May before she receives an honorary Academy Award at this month's Oscars. to the program. Uh, first and foremost, before we get down to the nitty-gritty, uh, I want to thank you for your support. We've had uh, listeners from all over this month. I am very proud to report, and we've had some people from people from Denmark, Turkey, Ireland, Peru, Brazil, India, and of course the UK, the States, and Canada as per usual. I love seeing that stuff, so thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you very much for your support. And if you would like to continue supporting the show, you can find us on the Spotify, the iTunes, or the Apple Podcasts, either or, the Google Podcasts, and as of very recently, uh, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn as well. Uh, The show is available on both those platforms as of about a week or two ago. Subscribe, like, and please leave ratings, leave comments. Anything that can help us rank and, uh, you know, boost the show a little bit is, uh, is greatly appreciated. And if you would like to stay up to date with what's happening on the show, what's coming up, uh, if you need any movie recommendations, you can follow us on the Instagram at Closed Set Podcast. And that is the handle, Closed Set Podcast. And of course, DMs are always welcome. If you'd like to shoot us one of those, feel free. And lastly, you can reach us by email at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com. You know the drill. Questions, comments, feedback, criticism, uh, recommendations, suggestions, whatever you got, I would love to hear it. Just don't be a douche. And uh, with that said, let us get down to it. Now, Elaine May, a woman of uh, a great many talents, she was an actress, a screenwriter, a playwright, a director, and she was great at every one of those things, Uh, had a tumultuous career, especially as a director. She only directed four films. All of them are great in their own way, the first three especially. Uh, And she made one of my personal favorite films, called Mikey and Nikki, which I can't wait to talk to you about. But she had a very tumultuous run as a director in Hollywood. She was the only female director in Hollywood of her era in the early 70s. And in pretty much all of her films, with the exception of maybe The Heartbreak Kid, her second, she had clashes with the studio, clashes with producers. She had budget problems, scheduling problems. And during the making of three of her four films, the studio she was working for underwent a regime change, which is always bad news for a filmmaker because... The new administration is usually reluctant to get behind old projects and so on and so forth. So uh, she had a very difficult run as a filmmaker in Hollywood, and we're going to talk about all of that today. She directed four wonderful films. I'm very fond of the first three especially. Uh, In chronological order, they are A New Leaf, The Heartbreak Kid, Mikey and Nikki, and Ishtar. But as per usual, we will start at the very beginning. Now, Elaine May is one of the few directors we've covered so far who is still with us. She was born uh, on April 21st, 1932, She will be 90 in a month, and she's about to receive an honorary Academy Award at the Oscars for her work, for her oeuvre, as they say. Her oeuvre is the proper French pronunciation, but I digress. In any case, she uh, she will be turning 90 very soon. I believe she and Robert Benton are the only two directors we've covered thus far on the show who are still with us. And May was born in Philly, and she was born to a Jewish family. Her birth name was actually Elaine Berlin. I'll explain how she took the name May shortly. Uh, But her parents were performers. They performed primarily in the Yiddish theater. 
and she toured with them basically throughout her childhood and even performed with them on stage uh, from a very, very young age. And I believe, I've read in a couple sources that she also worked in radio as a child actress back when, you know, radio dramas were still a thing. And so she bounced around from town to town basically throughout her childhood, and then when she was 11 or 12, uh, her father Jack passed away. And so she and her mother packed up and settled in Los Angeles where Elaine May went to high school. Although by her own admission, Elaine May hated school, quit when she was in her mid-teens, got married when she was 16 to a man named Marvin May, hence her current last name. Although the marriage didn't last, Marvin May, I believe, was an engineer and a toy inventor, and uh, the two of them were only married for uh, a short amount of time, maybe a couple of years. But they did have a daughter in 1949 when May was 17. Her name is Jeannie Berlin, and we're going to talk more about her later. Remember that name. She went on to become an actress and a screenwriter herself. And so despite quitting school, May did study acting with a woman named Maria Uspenskaya in Los Angeles. She was a, a renowned acting teacher on the West Coast and had a very, very respectable career as an actress as well. And so Elaine May studied under her. And then in the early 50s, I believe the year was 1952, the story goes that May hitchhiked to Chicago with, uh, a legend has it, about $7 in her pocket. The reason being, from what I've read, was that the University of Chicago was accepting students who didn't have a high school diploma. Which I find strange that that's the reason she packed up her shit and moved to Chicago, because like I said before, by her own admission, May did not like being in school. So what drew her to the University of Chicago besides easy admission, I have no fucking idea. But in any case, she didn't even end up enrolling. She attended some classes. She audited classes, I believe is the, is the term. But she, uh, like I said, did not enroll in any program specifically. Apparently she had some clashes, some debates with some teachers and some of the classes that she audited. But most importantly, she met Paul Sills and uh, one of the more important creative forces in her life, Mike Nichols who you may know as the director of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, Carnal Knowledge, a wonderful director. Made many, many great films. And so the two of them met at the University of Chicago in the early 50s. And Paul Sills and Mike Nichols were in a group called the Compass Players. Now, this troupe, this company, if you will, is credited as being America's first improvisational theater group. And Elaine May and Mike Nichols became fast friends. They both started working with the Compass Players, and the Compass Players as well, perhaps most importantly above all else, is basically considered the forebear, or the prototype, if you will, of Second City. And Paul Sills, in fact, was the first, uh, the original director of Second City. However, after working with them for some time, apparently the story goes Mike Nichols was asked to leave the group. I've read this somewhere, I don't know if it's 100% true. Apparently, Mike Nichols was considered to be too good for the group. Apparently, he was making all of them look bad, and he was asked to leave in 1957. And, of course, by then, he and May had hit it off. They had become very good friends, and she decided to leave with him. And May packed up her shit yet again and uh, took her act to New York. And that's how a very successful comedy team was born. She and uh, Mike Nichols became known as Nichols and May. Surprise. And the two of them were basically an improvisational comedy duo, and they started performing at various clubs in New York City. Uh, and this was in 1957, and by 1960, the two of them were performing on Broadway with their own show. And of course, they were performing on TV, they were performing on radio, they became a huge hit, they were a massive sensation. They put out three albums, I believe. I don't want to spend too much time talking about them, because I want the films to be the focus, but Nichols said in interviews that he and Elaine May never really wrote out a sketch or an idea in, in its entirety. They would basically write an outline, and the rest of it would be up to them on the spot. Anyway, Doctor. Yeah. Just as we're coming out of the tunnel, yeah. everyone in the dream suddenly turns to me and says, Look, 
There goes Gertrude Ederly. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't say anything. Yeah. And I give Goldie the reins of the elephant to hold because mm -hmm. I want to pay the good humor man for the popsicle. Yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, well, suddenly Goldie turns to me and she gets very uppity and mm -hmm. she says, if you can afford a popsicle, hold your own elephant. She wouldn't take the elephant. No. <laughs> well, what do you make of that? Well, uh, Mrs. Van Loon, you know, I, I see a pattern becoming clear in all of your dreams and yeah. I think uh, in this one it's unmistakable. Yeah. Your unconscious is telling you not to forget to file your income tax return early, you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. elephant becomes clear when you remember the deadline is April 15th. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, now I know what the good humor man means. Well, yeah? The sooner I file my return, the sooner I get any refund I might have coming. Yeah, yeah. Doctor, mm. can I deduct you from my income tax? Don't be tasteless. And they became huge hits. They were on TV. They were on radio. They put out three albums, like I said, and then abruptly at the height of their popularity in the early, early 60s, they basically decided to call it quits. And not that they had a falling out or anything. The two of them remained lifelong friends, and they would collaborate many times in various different mediums over the, over the course of their lives and careers. But uh, the two of them ultimately decided to go their separate ways at the height of their fame as a duo. And Mike Nichols went on to direct on Broadway and then transitioned into films. He directed Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1966. I believe that was his first film. And Elaine May dedicated her, uh, herself to writing, writing plays specifically. And her first couple plays, I believe, were staged in the early 60s, I think in 1962, and then in 1964... She uh, actually directed her first play off-Broadway. It was called The Third Year. And then in 1967, May's career as a film actress begins. She was in two films that year. The first was Carl Reiner's Enter Laughing, and the second was a film called Love. It was an adaptation of a Murray Shiskel play. And she co-starred with uh, Peter Falk. I believe they played husband and wife, and we're going to talk a lot more about Peter Falk later on. And so May, basically, by the time she directed her first feature, had already worn many, many different hats in show business, both as a performer and as a writer, and a director. And in the late 60s, she directed a double bill on the stage in the theater. The two plays were one of hers, called Adaptation, and the other was a Terrence McNally play, Next. And this was off-Broadway, it was a double bill. And it was during the 60s as well, in the early 60s, that uh, she married her second husband. It was a short-lived marriage, yet again. Uh, she married a lyricist, Sheldon Harnick, who had worked on Fiorello and Fiddler on the Roof, was a very accomplished lyricist and songwriter. Uh, they were married in 1962. They split a year later. That was the second of May's three marriages. And so the, uh, the 60s were a very, very busy decade for May, and it was her work on the stage as a director and as a playwright that ultimately landed her her first opportunity to direct a film, and that film was A New Leaf, which came out in 1971. And so this film stars Walter Matthau, the great Walter Matthau, as Henry Graham, who is basically a middle-aged bachelor who's been living on his trust fund money basically all his life. He's a man of leisure, and he finds out that he's broke. And so in a completely desperate attempt to preserve the only way of life he's ever known, he hatches a plan, with the seed being planted by his loyal and trusted butler, to marry a wealthy woman with no family, no connections, nobody she can leave her money to, marry her for access to her wealth and then kill her to inherit all of it and continue living as he's always lived. However, he's on a bit of a time crunch because he's had to go to his loathsome Uncle Harry for a loan because, of course, he's incurred some debts due to ins insufficient funds. And he still has to keep up appearances until he can find this bride and marry her and woo her and move in and all that stuff. However, his sadistic uncle has put some conditions on the loan and it has to be repaid on a very, very tight deadline. And so Henry Graham's time to bring this plot to fruition is limited, and he meets a woman, a wealthy heiress who works as a botanist, named Henrietta Lowell, who's played by Elaine May herself, 
and she's a bit of she's basically a hapless klutz kind of infantile in certain ways she's not really good at taking care of herself and she irks henry because he's you know your classic sort of bourgeois trust fund baby and he's irked at her sort of her primitiveness her lack of refinement her clumsiness of course and he manages to woo her he earns her trust Henrietta, if you turn me down, it will be the end of me. I will literally I'm, have nothing. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't. There I would be such a... I won't. You I won't. wouldn't. I'm not you, going to turn you down, Henry. You're not? No. I love you, Henry. And that was my dream, Henry, from the moment that you spilled your tea on Gloria Cummins' Ovisan. The someday that you would ask me to marry you. That was most of my dream... Henrietta, darling, will this Saturday be too soon? The two of them are married. He moves in. And before he can carry out the final part of the scheme, meaning, you know, kill her, he moves into her mansion and finds out that Henrietta's staff have basically been robbing her blind for years. And so basically, so he can optimize the amount of money he stands to inherit from killing her, he basically throws out all the staff who've been stealing from Henrietta, hires a whole new crew of people, learns how to manage her accounts, has, gains access to her finances, learns how to balance a checkbook. He learns about taxes, because keep in mind, he's lived, like I said before, a life of leisure. He doesn't really know how to do anything. You ever have any trouble with it before, Mr. Graham? Well, I have to take it in two or three times a week, which is somewhat inconvenient, but the car is well worth it. Two or three times a week? Well, how often do you drive it? Two or three times a week. He's been living off the money he, in he inherited for his entire life. And there's an irony in this film, and that's where a lot of the humor comes from, is the turn these these events take, where he only turns into a sort of mature and well-adjusted adult in whipping Henrietta's household into shape. And of course, he has ulterior motives because he wants to inherit her money, but it's in doing all of this and learning how to handle accounts and learning about taxes and getting the house in order. And he essentially comes to care for Henrietta because she doesn't know how to take care of herself. She's, like I said, almost childlike and just how helpless and clumsy she is so it's in trying to bring this plot of his to completion that he actually turns into a fairly well-adjusted adult and sure enough he comes to appreciate henrietta and maybe eventually even love her well, you know what the fuck do i know why don't you stick to what you know and leave your opinions wherever the fuck but um it is it's a very it's a very wonderful and sweet film and it's not an entirely one-way relationship. Henrietta surprises Henry. Because like I said, she's a botanist. And she has a dream of discovering a new kind of fern that has yet to be classified. And when you discover a plant or a species that hasn't yet been classified, it then gets named after you and you're kind of immortalized. And sure enough, Henrietta does. But instead of naming it after herself, she names it after Henry. As a show of appreciation for him in a wonderful scene that they shared together. Because as it turns out, despite Henry's scheming and this whole charade that he's had to play in order to inherit her money, Henrietta tells him that it's him that gave her confidence in herself and confidence in her work, and it's him that pushed her to take the, to take the plunge. And sure enough, she makes this discovery and names it after him. Don't you think it should be under, under L? I mean, Alsophila Loelia or something? I feel as though you've given me your place in the atlases. Henry, I don't think I could have ever discovered it without you. You gave me confidence. You remember? You said that if being with you was going to give me confidence, I was going to be a very confident botanist. Well, you were right. And long story short, Henry comes to understand that maybe he does have feelings for this woman. 
I know I'm spoiling it for you, but you'll come to understand why in a minute. Let's talk about the cast real quick. So Walter Matthau is the star of this. Like I said, he plays Henry Graham. Walter Matthau did a ton of great work. He was in The Fortune Cookie, The Taking of Pelham 123, which is a wonderful 70s film. He's fantastic in it. Charlie Varick, The Odd Couple, of course, Charade. A wonderful, wonderful career. And I, I really do love him in this. He puts on this sort of affectation, this upper-class sort of affectation, almost British kind of intonation in his voice because he's playing this sort of, you know, this bourgeois trust fund baby. And <laughs> um, the one thing I like about him is that he's kind of a misanthrope. He's a man of leisure, so he basically spends all his time at social clubs and around other people of his social status, you know. And that's the funny thing about these upper-class people is that there's this constant... All they do is hang out with each other, and there's this constant emphasis on good manners and, you know, keeping up appearances and all that, but none of them have any really... None of them have any, any relationships of any substance. And despite living that way, he doesn't seem to, to care much for people in general, which is, which is kind of funny. It's, it's a wonderful performance from him, and he's, he's hilarious. Is this some kind of joke? Because if it is, I do not find it amusing. If your nerves aren't steady enough to hold a cup and saucer in your hand, then you shouldn't be drinking tea. You would like once, yes, but twice in a row. It's too it, much. Too much. I don't Madam. There you are, madam. Take your damn carpet to the cleaners and send the bill to me. There you are. Come, Miss Laurel, I'm taking you home. Bye. Take your bag. You son of a bitch. You dare call me a son of a bitch. Madam, I have seen many examples of perversion in my time, but your erotic obsession with your carpet is probably the most grotesque and certainly the most boring I have ever encountered. You're more to be scorned than pitied. Good day, Mrs. Cunliffe. And Elaine May, of course, she wrote, directed, and starred in this film. And she plays Henrietta, and she is wonderful. A lot of people... Because a lot of the humor comes from these, the physicality of her performance or these, these physical gags, if you will, because, you know, she's a clutch. She's dropping things and spilling crumbs all over herself. A lot of people kind of liken her performance. They called it Chaplin-esque, and I think there's some truth to that. And she is, she's a great physical comic actor, and it's a performance unlike any other she's ever done. And she is absolutely wonderful in this and totally endearing and charming. It was a short story. Being an Alfred Hitchcock omnibus... And I, I liked it because I realized that the guy, the hero, was going to kill this woman. And he actually killed somebody else. I thought, oh, he's going to kill her, and he doesn't realize that he likes her. I mean, I reading this short story, and I thought, what an interesting thing to do as a, as a movie. So I, I wrote it, and we went through this thing where they said, you, you know, I said, I have to have director approval. And they said, you know, you can direct it. So I... I, I couldn't get it on without Walter Matthau, who started out as a regular person, and then, um, and then on the day we began, and, and then they wanted to have Carol Channing play the woman. And I said, I, it has to be somebody who really disappears. It's the guys moving and blah, blah, blah. So they said, well, can I pick the person? And they said, no, but you can play it. <laughs> um, and all for, all for the same money. Jack Weston shows up in this as well. Uh, he worked with Elaine May a couple times. He plays McPherson, her lawyer. And as we said before, Henrietta, May's character, is totally helpless. And he's a longtime friend of hers, and she's basically his only client. He's not much of a, you know, Johnny Cochran, he ain't. And he initially is entirely against Henrietta marrying Henry. He's convinced that Henry has some ulterior motives, and he claims to be in love with Henrietta. 
you know, he has feelings for her and he, he'll, you know, he threatens to kill himself if she marries him. And then, of course, it turns out once Henry moves in and he starts investigating the accounts and what the staff are up to and all that, it turns out that he just wants to keep his meal ticket because he's been in on this scheme with Henrietta's house staff and has been stealing from her as well for many, many years. I don't see why you take it for granted that the only reason that somebody would marry me is for my money. There may be some other basis, you know. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, of course, Henrietta, don't you think that I know? Haven't I proposed to you these past ten years on whatever other basis there is? Look, it's, it's just that with your, your discreet beauty and, and womanly presence, I, I find it deeply suspicious for anyone who claims to have penetrated the many mysteries of your personality in just three days. You're saying that I'm plain and shy, but that after a while, you get used to it. I am not. No, yes, I'm not. No, I'm yes, not. I'm saying that you're not flagrant. I'm saying that you're subtle, like some very expensive, custom-made hat. I don't know what I'm saying. Can't you see that I'm distraught? George Rose, another wonderful performance in this. He was a British actor. He plays uh, Walter Matthau's trusted butler, Harold, and it's him who plants the seed in Henry's head once he finds out that he's broke, that he could preserve his way of life if he marries a rich woman. And that's how this this whole scheme and he is born of course he doesn't know that henry eventually plans on killing henrietta but it's basically him who gives who gives henry the idea and he's a loyal and trusted butler a man of refinement and he has as much to gain from this as well because as he admits himself a man of his talents and a man of his skills isn't isn't really in demand in 1970s new york unfortunately take the plunge find a nice suitable young woman sir Borrow enough money from your uncle to keep up appearances. Don't become poor, Henry Graham, sir. Not just for your sake, sir, but... Well, this is difficult for me to say, sir, but for mine as well. I mean, how many men these days require the services of a gentleman's gentleman? How many men have your devotion to form, sir? You have managed in your own lifetime, Mr. Graham, to keep alive traditions that were dead before you were born. Don't give up the fight, sir. Just because the Philistines are upon thee. I now respectfully give two weeks' notice, sir. Will that be all? And it's a wonderful performance from George Rose. He won a Tony on Broadway for uh, his work in My Fair Lady. Uh, we also got James Coco. It's a small appearance, but it's a wonderful appearance. He was Coco was a great actor. He was in uh, Only When I Laugh with Marsha Mason, got nominated for an Oscar for that. He played Sancho Panza in Man from La Mancha with uh, Peter O'Toole. And he was in the great comedy uh, Murder by Death in the mid-'70s as well, which has an all-star cast. A wonderful actor. He plays... Uh, Walter Matthau's uncle Harry in this. Matthau's character Henry has to come to him for the loan, and the two of them do not like each other. And it's it's great the way the way Coco's character is set up, Uncle Harry. He's basically like a bourgeois Nero. Like he's he's in this robe, he's sitting at a table that's covered in food, and he's chowing down, and he's sitting there watching Henry grovel because he needs this loan so desperately. And Coco's character, Uncle Harry, is just sitting there and enjoying watching him squirm. It's, it's a fantastic showing from him. And he agrees to lend Henry the money, but he puts some pretty heavy conditions and a very tight deadline on it. And, of course, he's convinced that Henry's never going to pay him back. So he basically agrees to this whole arrangement just, you know, for his own amusement, if nothing else. You know, a good bit of schadenfreude. I'll do it. Thank you, Uncle. On one condition. What's that? Should you fail to repay me in six weeks, I am entitled to ten times the amount I lend you. Ten times the amount? Oh. 
That's ten times fifty thousand. Yes, that's right. That's that's everything I own. Mm -hmm. Of course, you could always go to a bank and ask for a personal loan. A bank? <laughs> oh God! If I could be a fly on the wall that day. Uh, oh, oh. Those are my terms. Take them or leave them as you choose. But that's usury. Mm-hmm. I'll take it. Good. I have my attorney draw up the documents tonight. We should be finished by tonight, don't you think? Yes. Thank you, Uncle. Oh, no, no. Call me Uncle Harry. After all, we're in business together now, Henry. And Doris Roberts shows up in this as well. Most people know her as Marie, the mom from Everybody Loves Raymond with Ray Romano. Uh, she had a wonderful career, though. She did a lot of work in the 70s. She plays Elaine May's housekeeper, Mrs. Traggart. And it's her who basically runs the... is supposed to be running the house and running the staff. And, of course, she... it's quickly discovered that uh, she's been stealing from Henrietta left and right, as has the rest of the staff. And Doris Roberts did a lot of great work. She was also, in the same year, in 1971, she was in a great film called Little Murders, uh, directed by Alan Arkin based on the Jules Pfeiffer play. It's a short appearance, but she's wonderful in it, and she's great in this as well. And lastly, we have William Redfield, who coincidentally looks almost identical to Mike Nichols with his, you know, his clean-shaven baby face. But uh, in any case, William Redfield plays Beckett, Matthau's lawyer. And it's him who, after trying to reach him a million and one times, finally sits Matthau down, Henry Graham, and tells him that he's broke and that he has no money. And it's a hilarious scene between the two of them. Well, are you entirely sure that you really do understand what I mean by capital, Mr. Graham? You see, you've exhausted the capital. I can't cover the check because the check is for $6,000 and you don't have $6,000. In other words, you don't have $60. Come to the point, Beckett. The point, Mr. Graham, is that you don't have any money. The capital and the income are exhausted and you no longer have any money. I wish there was some other way I could say it. What could I, how could I put it, uh, that money... You have no capital, you have no income, you have... No, it's only money. It's mo No, you have no money. There's, there's no other way to put it, you see. You mean I have no money? Yes, that's what I mean. You have no money. Uh, and William Redfield, probably best known uh, for playing Harding in One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, directed by Milos Forman in 1975. So they're the cast. And like I said, it's a wonderful film, and it's a sweet romantic comedy, but it wasn't intended to be one. Now, as we said before... Elaine May had problems with the studio she worked with on basically every film she ever made, except for The Heartbreak Kid. And this film was put on by Paramount. And like I said, it was May's first turn as a director. Now, initially, the film started with a budget of about $1.8 And ultimately, by the time the film was done, May had basically doubled the budget of the film. It had, gone, it had risen to above $4 million. And she had gone way over schedule. However... May, by her own admission, said that this wasn't so much because she was a perfectionist, but more because this was her first time working behind the camera, and she really didn't have any idea what she was doing, and she was learning on the job. And by her own admission, she didn't really understand the finer points of filmmaking and just what exactly it took to make a movie. And on this movie, I, the only thing I knew anything about was I knew about acting. I knew I had my cast in, in, in the movie. I had my actors. I'd been an acting teacher. I directed... But and I and I knew how I wanted it to look, and I would say things like, I I, <laughs> I want them to be full figure, but not tiny, because everybody said you don't have to know about lenses. They said, little girl, you don't have to know about. 
And, and, I, and finally, somebody took me aside and said, there are long lenses and wide lenses. There are so through the entire movie, I, I've never, you've never seen a movie with that many mistakes. And it was but in any case, the budget turned out to be twice as much as originally intended. She took a long time to shoot it, and she spent a very, very long time in the cutting room, nearly one year. So the studio wasn't too pleased about any of those things. And of course, she emerged from the cutting room with a cut that was about three hours long. And the studio hated it. And ultimately, they took the film from her and cut it down significantly. The film comes in at about an hour, 40-some minutes. So they trimmed a shit ton of footage from it. And most importantly, they basically removed an entire subplot in which Henry moves into Henrietta's house. He discovers from the accounts that not only has the staff been stealing from her, but that Henrietta is actually being blackmailed by her lawyer and a third party, a character that was going to be played, or who was played, I guess, by a New York actor named William Hickey. So this entire subplot was cut out, and in the subplot ends up getting resolved with Henry poisoning Henrietta's blackmailer. And the film was going to end with him basically resigning himself to living a traditional, conventional life with Henrietta. He spares her, although he does get away with murdering the blackmailer, and the life that he ends up spending with Henrietta becomes his penance. That's how it was supposed to end. And of course, the studio reconfigured it entirely, so they essentially took what was supposed to be a black comedy and turned it into a sweet rom-com. And May was not pleased about it at all, to the point where she wanted the studio to take her name off the film. Although I will say, the film still holds up on its own. I mean, it's, it's hilariously funny, the performances are wonderful, the story, even without that subplot and with a different ending, still holds up. So if anything, the final product is still kind of a testament to, to May's abilities as a writer and as a director. But the studio fucked with it, essentially, and she was not pleased about it at all. You can kind of tell a little bit that, that the film was fucked with a little bit because it moves along at a fairly leisurely pace most of the way through. And then from the time that they get married, Henry moves into the house and starts whipping things into shape. The story moves a lot quicker from that point onwards after he moves in. So you can kind of tell that a good bit of footage has been trimmed just because of how fast things move in that, in that last stretch of the film. But it's still a wonderful film. The critics gave it mixed reviews when it came out. May did get nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance, and rightfully so. But the film ha is much more appreciated today than it was then. And that's the case with pretty much all of May's films. But unfortunately, uh, we have yet to see that original cut that May had put together. Uh, in 1971 as well, she uh, continued working as a screenwriter. She wrote the script for uh, Otto Preminger's film, Such Good Friends. She asked that the writing credit of the film be credited to Esther Dale, which is actually the name of, a, of an actress who had a very prolific career in the 30s and 40s, because she was not pleased with some apparent liberties that Preminger had taken with her script, so she wanted her name taken off it. Uh, and in 1972, she directed her second film called The Heartbreak Kid. This was put out by 20th Century Fox. It's a wonderful film from Elaine May, another, another great entry in her body of work. But it wasn't really her baby. This was actually a director for hire job, and she didn't write the script. It was actually written by the great Neil Simon. And it was based on a story that had been written by Bruce J. Friedman. And this is yet another sort of dark romantic comedy. And it stars Charles Grodin as a young man named Lenny Cantro, who meets a woman named Lila, played by May's daughter, Jeannie Berlin. And the two of them get married after dating pretty briefly. It's a pretty short courtship. They have a traditional Jewish wedding, they head down to Florida on their honeymoon, but they're driving there, they're making stops along the way. And it becomes very, very apparent that these are two people who don't know each other very well. They don't know each other intimately. And it's during this drive down to Florida where they're going to have their honeymoon that Lenny finally sees her foibles, her idiosyncrasies, if you will, 
And the more of these little eccentricities he sees in his wife, the more he's irked by them, and the more he comes to regret marrying her. I don't know what's wrong with you. Nothing. You've been acting this way the whole trip. I haven't. I've been a little irritable in Georgia. I was fine in Virginia and Delaware. I just wanted to know how it felt to you. It felt really terrific. It's just... I don't understand why I have to announce it all the time. You don't have to announce it all the time. Just tell me. I have to be reassured. What's wrong with that? It's difficult to give out bulletins in the heat of passion. You hardly said a word to me all night. I'm always quiet at night. You were never quiet before we were married. We never made love before we were married. You fooled around a little bit, but this is all new. And then once they get to Florida, he has a chance encounter with a young white woman from Minnesota, a shiksa goddess, as they like to call them in the tribe, from what I understand. And he's immediately enamored with this young woman, Kelly, played by Sybil Shepard, to the point where he basically blows his entire life up in pursuit of a relationship with her. And Lenny is kind of a nebbishy guy. He's shallow. He's self-absorbed. And he basically becomes obsessed with this young woman, Kelly. He, ex he exoticizes her more than anything else. But her parents are on to him. Her father especially wants absolutely nothing to do with him. Kelly is a young college student. She just seems to be in it for, I don't know, a bit of a fling. And she seems to be pretty shallow herself, to be honest. But that doesn't stop Lenny from basically blowing his entire life up. He ends his marriage to Lila before it's even gotten started. And he ends up following Kelly and her family to Minnesota to pursue a relationship with her and pursue a life with her. This is another great thing about it. It's And we mentioned the irony of a new leaf, where... Henrietta basically charms Henry to the point where he decides not to kill her, and he actually he actually kind of gets his shit together. There's a similar kind of irony in The Heartbreak Kid where you have Lenny, who has married basically a traditional girl. I mean, she's traditional at, at the minimum in the sense that she was holding out on sex until they got married. They have a traditional Jewish wedding. So you have a guy who basically rushes into a traditional life with a traditional girl, who he doesn't really know, that much is obvious, only for him to basically turn everything on its head, blow everything up, uproot his life entirely, and follow a girl to Minnesota, yet another girl that he doesn't really know and that he's exoticized, so he can settle into a traditional marriage with her and basically make the same mistake all over again. I wish you'd have let me discuss settlement. I could have saved you money. It's settled. It's settled. I, I, I gave her everything. I, all I kept was my savings bonds, $900. I could have done better for me. No, Ralph, I want it this way. I'm not looking to come out a winner on this deal. I'm, I'm willing to pay for my mistake. Of course, if she's willing to discuss it, I'll leave that up to you. The final papers will come through in about three weeks. The sooner the better. I'm heading for the Midwest. I'll send you my address. What's in the Midwest? A terrific girl I met on my honeymoon. Don't worry, I'll send you an invitation. And it's interesting, a lot of people... A lot of critics, theorists, scholars, whatever, they basically think the, the central theme of this film is Jewish identity. And yes, basically, the major creative forces behind this film were Jewish. May was Jewish, Neil Simon, the man who wrote the source material, Bruce J. Friedman, the producer of the film was Jewish, and Charles Grodin, and of course, May's daughter herself. So, yeah, I, I suppose that plays a part. But I gotta be honest, I mean, I'm an ethnic man myself. I mean, I'm not Jewish, but I was... 
raised in a fairly traditional household, and I can certainly understand this tendency to exoticize just something that you're not familiar with, even if it's kind of commonplace. I mean, and that's part of the humor of the film. He's You see Lenny, when he's first introduced to this girl, Kelly, played by Sybil Shepherd, the, the, the Shiksa goddess on the beach, the first time we see her in the film, she's looking down at Lenny, who's lying down on the beach, and the, the, the sun is directly behind her, so she's glowing in the sun, and it almost looks like she has a halo around her. She's presented in an almost angelic or otherworldly light. That's my spot. What? Excuse me? I said you're lying in my spot. This is your spot? Everybody knows that. I didn't know. I'm j I just got here. Oh. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I moved. I just got here. Never mind, just don't do it again. And that's how Lenny sees her. And like I said, he exoticizes her, but she's basically just a regular old waspy white woman from Minnesota. I mean, there's nothing exotic about her. But yet again, I can certainly understand that tendency to sort of romanticize or idealize a woman who is basically of a, of a world or of a background that you're not really familiar with. So let's talk about the cast quickly. So Charles Grodin, like I said, is the star. Charles Grodin had a great career. He plays Lenny Cantrell. He was in Rosemary's Baby, Catch-22, Midnight Run with Robert De Niro. He was in Heaven Can Wait. And like I said, he's kind of a nebbishy guy. He's shallow, self-absorbed. But you basically look at his behavior over the course of the film and there's no way this guy isn't out of his fucking mind. He's nuts. These yarns that he has to spin to get away from his wife so he can pursue this this romance with Kelly, the way he basically just blows it all up to move to Minnesota and pursue this relationship with a girl he barely knows and kind of weasel his way into her life and sort of will this this new relationship into existence. And it's an incredible performance from Charles Grodin. I gotta say, watching this film, I cannot imagine this role being played any other way. Grodin really owned this character, and he played it with the utmost sincerity. Obviously, he didn't play Lenny as a guy who's basically out of his mind and doesn't know what he wants. He basically played him as a guy with genuine and good intentions. You know, I'll tell you the truth. I was really under the impression that our relationship... <laughs> was at a much more advanced stage than the point where you were really very flattered. I mean, I just gave up a whole goddamn marriage. Well, you caught me off guard. It's my first day back at school. I've got English Lit. Oh, you know, screw English Lit. I just gave half my life away. Jeannie Berlin plays Lila, Charles Grodin's bride. And like I said, she was Elaine May's daughter. She kind of looks like her, and she and she sounds almost exactly like her in certain spots, just that, that cadence. And <laughs> it's a great performance from Jeannie Berlin. She's, like I said, she's totally infantile. I mean, she's a grown-ass woman who says pee-pee, and she even eats like a child. She orders a double-egg salad with a chocolate shake. She gets sunburned while they're in Miami, and she cakes her entire face with cream, you know, almost like a child would. You know, and she's not unlike... The character her mother plays in A New Leaf, if you think about it, she's totally helpless and, you know, she's a disaster, really. But it's a sweet performance from Jeannie Berlin as well, because she's an innocent. She's all in. She's com she's committed to Lenny, and she ultimately she wants, she wants a life with him. And you see over the course of the film, especially early on, she talks about, you know, being together for 40 and 50 years. And of course, you know, that just drives Lenny batshit crazy, because the more he's learning about this girl, the more he's beginning to regret marrying her. But it's a wonderful performance from Jeannie Berlin. You're quiet this morning. I'm always quiet in the morning. I never noticed that before. 
There's a lot of things that you didn't notice about me and a lot of things I never noticed about you. Lenny, look. You gonna see us in 50 years? That's gonna be us. Isn't it, Lenny? Sybil Shepard plays Kelly, the Shiksa goddess. Uh, she was in The Last Picture Show, the Peter Bogdanovich film. She was also in Taxi Driver. She had her own show later in her career, and she was also in the series called Moonlighting with Bruce Willis in the 80s. Eddie Albert plays her father, Mr. Corcoran, and he is your classic sort of elitist American wasp. It's great at the beginning, especially because he's he's on to Lenny. He's wary of him. He wants absolutely nothing to do with him. You know, of course, because Lenny's trying to bang his daughter. And he's totally, he's completely dismissive of Lenny, and he's trying not to really give him the time of day and keep his distance, and he, he does a great job of showing his disdain for Lenny without really saying or doing very much early on in the film. And then, of course, Lenny shows up at their doorstep in Minnesota, and ultimately just, he wears Mr. Corcoran down, and it's a great performance from Eddie Albert. The two of them have some wonderful scenes together. Hi, Mr. Cork. Len Cantro from Florida. I'm here. I don't expect you to let me see your daughter right off, sir, but I just wanted to stop by and let you know that I, it wasn't some wild story I made up in Florida. I have gotten myself free. Well, I've got to run now because I uh, get myself set up. Please, please uh, say hello to Mrs. Corcoran for me. And would you please tell Kelly that I've got myself a room at the No Way Motel? No Way Motel. Good afternoon, sir, and I hope I see you again very soon. Cantro. Sir. You show your face here again. I'm going to kick your ass right over the Canadian border. Audra Lindley plays Mrs. Corcoran, Kelly's mother and the wife to Eddie Albert's character. She's best known as uh, Mrs. Roper, Helen Roper in Three's Company. And Doris Roberts shows up again. She worked with Elaine May again in this as Mrs. Cantrell. She, I guess, plays Lenny's mom. She's only in a tiny, tiny part. You see her at the wedding at the beginning of the film. And uh, she doesn't say much, but she does show up. You'll recognize her if you, when you see her. And this is the interesting thing. And this is kind of true of A New Leaf as well. But in this film especially, the humor doesn't really come out of the dialogue itself. It comes more out of the behavior of the characters, the situations they put themselves in, and the dis their discomfort in those situations. Because you have Lenny especially. There are these great moments where, like I said, he's trying to weasel his way into Kelly's life. And there are these scenes where he's sitting with her parents and he's trying to ingratiate himself to them. And he goes on these long, nonsensical monologues that are all just bullshit. Lenny doesn't really believe any of it himself. And it's just this verbal diarrhea, these long harangues of babble. And it's so uncomfortable. Well, I don't mind saying it. This is one of the finest meals that I've ever had. Oh, thank you, Leonard. It's simple, you know. Mr. Mr. Corcoran doesn't really care for fancy food. Though I imagine you've tried just about every kind of exotic dish in New York. Exactly. You? See, that's, that's the trouble. It's exotic, but it's not honest. I mean, it's fancy, but it's not, it's not real. I mean, this is honest food. There, there's no lying in, in that beef. There, there's no uh, insincerity in those potatoes. There's no deceit in the cauliflower. This is a, a totally honest meal. You don't know what a pleasure it is to sit down this day and age and, and eat food that you can believe in. 
And there's another scene like that as well, where he, the the scene where he and his wife Lila, Jeannie Berlin, are at the restaurant, and he's finally he finally wants to sit her down and break it to her that the marriage is over, but he's trying to let her off easy, and he keeps sort of beating around the bush. And it's the it's a long sequence. It's got to be around ten minutes long. And again, that's where that's where the humor comes from. Oh my god. Oh my god, Lenny. I think I know what you're trying to tell me. I didn't want it to happen. I didn't plan it. You're good. You're good. You deserve better than me. You deserve much better than me. I didn't want it to happen. I didn't plan anything like this. Oh, Lenny. Oh, Lenny. Oh, my God, Lenny. <laughs> oh, Lenny, you're dying. Oh, Lenny, you've got something and you never told me. Oh, Lenny. I'm not dying. Who said anything about dying? I want out of the marriage. I want out of the goddamn marriage. And it's kind of unlike a Neil Simon project in that way, because Neil Simon, like I said, wrote the script, but there's a very... His writing is very quippy. There's a lot of trading barbs back and forth. There's that sort of... There's that unique comic rhythm, that comic timing that he has to his scripts, especially if you watch, for example, California Suite, those scenes with Jane Fonda and Alan Alda where they're going back and forth and trading, trading jabs. This film isn't really like that. It's not so much in what the characters say. It's more in how they behave. And ultimately, at the end of the film, Lenny wears down Kelly's father, convinces him to approve of him marrying Kelly. And then, of course, at the wedding, Lenny is completely alienated. Nobody's really giving him the time of day. He's weaseled his way in to the lives of these people who are basically just pretty milk toast and boring. And Kelly herself, like I said, is as shallow as he is. And Lenny is left at the end of the film on his wedding day, sort of contemplating his fate. And like I said before, he's, it's really just about a guy, to put it in the simplest of terms, it's really just about a guy who doesn't know himself and doesn't know what he wants. And interestingly enough, this was, by May's own admission, it's basically the only film of hers that wasn't sort of riddled with problems with the studio or with production. There was a little bit of um, tension with Neil Simon because Neil Simon didn't want any of his dialogue messed with during the making of the film. He wrote the script, so the project, in a sense, was his baby. And like I said, May was basically a director for hire on this. And May, like we said before, came from improv comedy before she uh, started working as a director and as a screenwriter. So, of course, she was open to improvisation, and she and Simon disagreed on, on how much leeway the actor should be given when shooting. And ultimately, they reached an agreement where they would shoot the scenes as written, they would leave a little bit of room for improvisation, maybe they would shoot... I'm assuming maybe they would shoot one take as written and then and then in another take allow for some ad-libbing, some improv, and for them to go off script. And then, of course, they would decide what worked best in the editing room. So they came to sort of a compromise. And some interesting casting notes. May was dead set on casting Charles Grodin. He had been in a few films. He wasn't a household name by any means at the time. This, this film essentially launched his career. But Neil Simon wasn't convinced on casting Charles Grodin, and so they had to bring him in for a, for a reading and Grodin did great, and he did in the film as well, and uh, that's how Simon was convinced. Neil Simon, on the other hand, absolutely wanted Sybil Shepherd to play the part of Kelly the Shiksa Goddess, and May actually needed to see Shepherd in an audition to be convinced. And Neil Simon also wanted Diane Keaton to play Lila the wife. Apparently, Neil Simon didn't think that Jeannie Berlin was pretty enough to play the wife, but May objected because she believed that having Diane Keaton and Sybil Shepherd as the two women of the film uh, there wouldn't be a stark enough contrast between the Jewish wife and the Gentile wife. And ultimately her daughter was cast, and apparently it wasn't revealed that Jeannie Berlin was her daughter. 
until uh, just before shooting began. And the film really didn't have that many problems beyond that, so it was, it was an exception in May's career as a director. And also, unlike the rest of her films, it was a beloved upon release. It got rave reviews, the critics loved it, it got nominated for all kinds of awards. Charles Grodin, Jeannie Berlin, and Neil Simon all got nominated for Golden Globes. And Jeannie Berlin and Andy Albert both ended up uh, getting nominated for Best Supporting Actress and Actor Oscars that year in 1972 as well, and rightfully so. The performances are wonderful. It's a hilarious, dark comedy. However, my favorite film of Elaine Mays is this next one that she made, and it's called Mikey and Nikki. It came out in 1976. Now, this film stars Peter Falk as Mikey and John Cassavetes as Nikki. Well, they're two shithead crooks, lifelong friends. They've known each other for 30 years. And the film begins with Nicky fearing that he's been marked for death. He's stolen from the mob. He's convinced there's a contract out on him. He's behaving erratically. He has nowhere to turn. He's hiding out in some shitty flop house in Philadelphia. And of course, he calls his friend Mikey for help. And Mikey shows up, being the good friend that he is. And the film essentially follows the two of them over the course of one dark and damp night in Philadelphia. As they're trying to sort of get Nick to safety and figure out what to do with him. While, of course, a hitman is on their trail, so in fact, Nikki's suspicions are correct. There is a hitman following them around. And they make various stops. They go to a bar, they go to see a lady friend, they go to a cemetery. <laughs> because Nick is impulsive and he's behaving erratically, of course. And ultimately, you come to find out that Mikey is, in fact, in on the hit. And that he is setting up Nick to be killed. And it's not a spoiler, I'm not giving away the ending. It's revealed very early on in the film. And the film, I mean, it, it was billed as a gangster picture, but... It's really not. Ultimately, what it comes down to is it's a film about friendship. It's a film about masculinity, male bonding, the good and bad of masculinity. And it's a wonderful film, just getting a, a full, unvarnished look at this lifelong friendship between these two characters that runs 30 years. They're two people who, who know each other well. And you get a complete look at them, warts and all, good and bad. How's that? Fine. Yeah? Fine. Yes, How's the kids? How the kids terrific? Terrific. Kids big as a truck. Yeah. Beats up all the other kids in the nursery school. Beats up. <laughs> Must be tough. The norms. How's your kid? Must be what? Five months now? She's five months, yeah. She's got teeth. Really? Yeah. That's something. It's a terrific kid. Holds my thumb. <clears throat> That's cute. Who's she looking like? Where you going? Come on. Where you going? Come on. Where you going? I'm gonna go to Jan's. Now? Gotta say goodbye. Gotta say goodbye to the kid, too. They don't see you for a while, they forget your face. Nick, that's crazy. Come on, let's Wait a minute. Let me finish my beer. And the two of them are as likable as they are loathsome. Because on the one hand, take Nick to begin with, John Cassavetti's character. He's, he's selfish, he's impulsive, he treats his women like garbage, he's stolen from the mob, and he isn't above humiliating Mikey, if, you know, just for his own amusement or for a laugh. And yet despite, you know, all his flaws, all his faults, he is, he is the more affable of the two. <laughs> and he's the one who's, you know, the more liked of the two among their peers and by their boss. And Mikey resents him for that. Mike? What's the matter? Fuck off, will you? You mad at me. Come on, don't be mad at me. You got all the friends. You got all the money. Did you have to do that to me in front of some dumb bitch to prove you got all the women? I didn't know that was going to happen. Honest to God, she screws anyone. But 
everybody but me. Mikey, is that my fault? Don't get mad at me because some dumb hooker turned you down. She's your girl. She's not a hooker. You don't pay for that. Mikey, she's a psycho. You gotta, you gotta tell her you love her. You give her a few bucks. You tell her it's a present. I thought this was gonna make it interesting for you. Bullshit. You know what would happen. Honest to God, Mikey, I, I didn't. I, I wouldn't do anything to hurt you on purpose. I, I wouldn't do anything to make you look bad. You, you're like my family. I love you. Hey, I think you'd make your family look bad on purpose. Because I don't think you love anyone but you. And Mikey isn't a saint himself. Of course, he set up his friend to be killed. And there's a lot of deep-seated resentment for Nicky. Over his selfishness, over how well-liked he is despite all the shit he's pulled. And he doesn't like being the butt of the joke. He doesn't like being made to be the third wheel. And there are a couple jabs thrown over the course of this night in Philly over Mikey's resentment of Nick and his jealousy of him. And it goes back many, many years, we come to find out. Wish I'd known your father. You wouldn't like him. He was a very sour man. And he didn't like any of the women in the family. But he liked Nick. And he liked Izzy. See, Nick kidded him a lot. Well, I'm sure he liked you, too. And Mikey, unlike Nick, is a happily married man. Although, in the short amount of time we actually see him and his wife together, we come to find out that Mikey's wife doesn't really know much about him. He tells her about his brother who died. I mean, if you're married, you know, this is your life partner, a woman who's supposed to know you intimately. I mean, you know, your brother's death at the age of 10 is kind of need-to-know information, you ask me. And despite all this... Despite the terrible things these characters have done, and the state of their friendship, and whatever resentments they each may have for the other, and how they treat each other at certain points over the course of the film, there are these moments between them, and I might get choked up talking about this, so forgive me, but there are these moments between them of, of such warmth, and there, there are these brotherly moments between them, especially from the beginning of the film, Nikki calls Mikey to help him out, he has, he's getting an ulcer attack, and there are these little things, you know, Mikey shows up with some medicine for him to take to, to, to ease the pain. He runs down to the, the diner to get him some, some milk or some half and half, because apparently that'll, that'll soothe it. But in any case, he, he shows up and he immediately starts caring for Nikki in the dead of night. And, you know, there, there are these moments where they're, they're riding around Philly on the bus and they're just being, they're turning back the clock. They're just being immature shitheads again, you know. <laughs> and even Nick, for all his selfishness and, you know, his his impulsiveness and all the rest of it. Even he shows these moments, these little moments of sweetness towards Mikey, and that scene in the cemetery especially, where they're talking about, you know, their childhood and, and, and Mikey's brother who passed away at a young age. I wish, I wish my mother was alive. I wish your mother was alive. And I wish your father was alive, and I wish your, my father was alive, and I wish your brother Izzy was alive. Did you know my brother, Izzy? Sure. God, don't you remember? I mean, he lost all his hair, and then we killed him baldy the next day he died, and then we went out down to the grave, and we, we said, we're sorry, we apologized. He was 10 years old, God rest his soul. My poor brother. <laughs> oh, this is terrible. And all this to say, and this is what I love most about this film that Elaine May made, is that you're looking at the friendship of two complete human beings, 
There's nuance in these characters and in their behavior and the way they treat each other. And it is gritty. It's shot kind of documentary style. They shot the film entirely at night in Philadelphia and in Los Angeles. And for all its grit and all the grime you see in the city of Philadelphia, <laughs> it is a beautiful film, without a doubt. And it is a wonderful and complete look at masculinity and friendship and male bonding, and one that was written and directed by a woman. And it has a lot of the qualities of Cassavetti's films. You know, just the sort of the, the completeness of these characters and the nuance and the, even the aesthetic of it. And that's not to say that May ripped off Cassavetti's by any means. I'm just saying these are, these are part, of the, it's part of what I love about this film. And the performance of these two characters are so wonderful. Peter Falk, he was known primarily as a comic actor. You know, because of Columbo and It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World and a bunch of other things he made. But he was a wonderful dramatic actor as well. And he has this, he has this rage in him. And this isn't an affectation. It's not manufactured. Peter Falk has these moments. You see it in Mikey and Nicky and you see it in A Woman Under the Influence where he worked with Cassavetes again. He could flip a switch and just go from zero to 60 at the drop of a dime and there's this scene early on in the film where he runs down to the diner to get Nick some half and half and the guy working the counter is giving him a hard time. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty funny scene to start out with and then Peter Falk gets fed up, he flips a switch and it, it's a scene that's as, as jarring as it is funny. And that rage that he has in him, that's not manufactured, that is 100% real. Give me some milk and some cream and separate cartons to go. Just got milk. No cream? Not to go. What are you putting the coffee here? You have any cream? Use these little bottles here. All right, give me 15 of those little bottles to go. Give me a couple of cartons of milk. Uh, I can't do that. We don't give these bottles to go. If you want coffee to go, I put the cream in right here and I use the dispenser right back there, sir. All right, give me a carton of cream from the dispenser. How many coffees? Well, no coffees. Just fill up a carton of cream. Can't do that. I wouldn't know what to charge it. Cream is for the coffee only. It's not for sale. Charge me for 15 coffees and give me the cream. That's right. You give me that in 30 seconds, you hear me, or I'll kill you. Okay, sir. Because I'm crazy. Okay. Now give it to me. Yes, sir. Okay. Just give it to me. Okay. okay. Give it to me. Come near me and I'll kill you. And Cassavetes is wonderful in it as well. And the two of them rehearsed a lot during the making of this film and they liked going off script but you wouldn't know that the film was scripted at all just because the two of them had worked together before they had worked together on Cassavetti's film Husbands they had done an episode of Columbo together they're such a natural pair and there is humor in this film to the point where the two of them are almost like a comedy team because you have you have Nicky who's almost like the comic character but just because of the way he's behaving like he's he's all over the place and like I said he's impulsive and he's taking them all over Philly and they're making all these stops and Mikey is, is almost like the big brother of the duo. He's kind of like the, the straight man. You know, he's a bit of a square as well. And the two of them are such a wonderful duo. Are we close, do you think? Nick? Are we Look at this, will you? Nick, are we close? I don't know. Gotta see some more names. Is that how you find it? You memorize the names on the headstones? She's buried next to a whole family of Irishmen. It's a Catholic cemetery, Nick. It's full of Irishmen. And Ned Beatty is in this as well. He plays the hitman who's trailing them throughout this night in Philly. And he's kind of world-weary, and I love the way he plays it. He's not like, it's not like some, you know, some trigger-happy, ultra-violent psychopath. He basically plays it like a working stiff. And you see at points in the film, he's bitching about taking this job, and he had to turn down some others, and he's whining about the shitty money he's going to make when it's all said and done. I absolutely love the way he plays it. 
I should have had a driver on this, damn it. Every place I've been tonight, I couldn't park. There's no parking sign every time I turn around. Make a right. Finally ended up... Wait, I waited in the no parking zone for you all night long. You should have taken a driver. Oh, Jesus. I take a driver, I gotta pay him a buck too. Shouldn't have needed a driver on this. Carol Grace is in this as well. She plays Nellie. She's the, the lady friend that the two of them visit. She's, uh, she seems to be a little fragile, let's say, a little frail. And Cassavetes is there to take advantage of her, and of course the two of them start fooling around. And it's a, it's a wonderful sequence, it's, the way it's shot especially, because he, he humiliates Mikey in this scene, Nikki does. He convinces Mikey that, you know, he'll have a go once, once he and Nellie have fooled around, and there's this great shot, this great wide shot, where on the one side you have... You have Nikki and Nellie fooling around on the floor in the dark, and at the other end of it, you see Mikey, Peter Falk's character, sitting by himself in the kitchen, the third wheel. And he's only in the next room, but with the way the shot is framed, he might as well be a world away. And the awkwardness of that sequence between him and Nellie and Nikki, and then finally he goes in to have a go at it with Nellie, and of course she turns him down, and of course he leaves feeling totally humiliated by Nikki. And that proves to be the last straw with him, and the two of them have... A huge blowout in the street. That's where they have their falling out. They air out all their resentments. And that's where a 30-year friendship comes to an end. You make me out a joke, the Resnick. Just like you made me out a joke to that girl. Mikey, you're wrong. And I'd do anything for you. Anything. And unless you're sick or in trouble, you don't even know now look what you did. Now you called me. Now I came and look what you did. And for no reason, no fucking reason, bullshit. Go find yourself another friend. You're wrong. Really? Mike? Hey, Mike. Hey, hey, Mikey. Jesus Christ, come on. Hey, Mike. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Honest to God, you're wrong. I wouldn't do anything bad to you. I love you, Mike. Please don't walk out on me, Mikey. Please. Please don't walk out on me. And some other great actors show up in small parts as well. Joyce Van Patten, who I love, had a very prolific career. She's still around. She's in her 80s. She was in uh, I Love You, Alice B. Toklas. She did a ton of TV work as well. She was in The Danny Kaye Show. She guest starred in The Sopranos. She plays Janice's therapist. Uh, in one episode, I believe it's in season four, her brother Tim Van Patten directed a bunch of episodes of The Sopranos. A wonderful, wonderful New York actress. She uh, she plays Cassavetti's wife, Jen, in this. And she's only in the one scene, but it's a great scene between the two of them. I'm sorry, sweetie. Oh, don't bother being sorry. Just just get out of here. Please, baby, don't you feel like this isn't the right treatment. Isn't this the way your girlfriends treat you? Tell me how they treat you, and I'll try to copy it. Jane, I'm sorry. What's the matter? Is everybody else busy tonight? Oh, your girlfriend's busy. The boy's too busy to have a drink with you. It's a shame that Resnick wants to have you killed because now you will be able to spend all of your evenings with him. Tell me what he used to do that was so wonderful and I'll try to copy it. M. Emmett Walsh, the great character actor, who is also still around. He's also in his 80s. He plays the bus driver. And Sanford Meisner, who's a legendary acting teacher, of course, pioneered the, the Meisner technique, bears his name. Uh, and I believe he worked out of the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York City. Didn't do a ton of screen work. 
But he shows up in this in a couple scenes as Resnick, the, the mob boss that Mikey and Nicky work for in this film. And lastly, William Hickey, who was cut out of a new leaf, uh, he shows up in this in a couple scenes. He plays another guy who works for Resnick, a right-hand man of sorts. He shows up in a couple spots. And like I said, it, it's a wonderful film. And this film is actually the last one I was able to see in a movie theater before COVID and all that craziness. I remember the date. It was March 4th, 2020. <laughs> at the Royal Theatre in Toronto when I still lived there. And it had been a long time since I'd seen the movie. And I went in and I sat down, and the Royal's a wonderful place. It was one of the last movie palaces, those old movie palaces, a great big theatre in Toronto. And I went back in November recently, and I found out that it closed down. It made me very sad, because I, I saw some great films there. But I went there to see Mikey and Nicky, and I hadn't seen it in a while, so I was basically getting reacquainted with the film. It had been a long time since I'd seen it. And it was like I was seeing with virgin eyes again. And I remember sitting there, kind of falling in love with this film all over again. And we get to the scene in the cemetery. And, and the two of them are basically, you know, like I said, there's, there's, there's something almost akin to a comedy team about them. You know, this, this duo, Peter Falk and Cassavetes. And they're at the cemetery. And they're talking about their families. And they're talking about Mikey's brother, Izzy, who died. And it's bringing tears to my eyes. And then a split second later, the, they throw out some quip. And I start laughing out loud. I did a complete 180 in, in a fraction of a second, and that was the power these two performances had. And I, was, I remember feeling totally enamored with the beauty of how this, this friendship was portrayed. And I gotta say, it's unlike any other experience I've had sitting in a movie theater. And all this to say, I don't mean to make this about me, I, I generally don't like to talk about myself on this show, but all this to say that this film has a very, very sort of special place in my heart. And I think it's Elaine May's best. Unfortunately, and this film was plagued with problems. Initially, 20th Century Fox was going to put it out. They were going to distribute it, but they ended up dropping the project because, the, like with A New Leaf, the initial budget had gone up by over half a million. And May was willing to take the extra cost of the film out of her salary if it meant that she, that she could have final cut privilege over the, over the film and get a say over the final product. But ultimately, Paramount ended up picking up the film. So May ends up back there, and they gave Elaine May a strict budget. They gave her a tight deadline to turn the film in. But of course, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, so the film was shot entirely at night. It was a very difficult shoot to the point where the cinematographer, Victor Kemper, he, he almost quit the production entirely. And he was a great cinematographer. He had worked on Dog Day Afternoon, The Gambler, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, a million and one fantastic 70s films. And they began shooting the film in 1973. I believe she was supposed to turn the film in in June of 1974. The shoot ran well into 1974. And... By the time the shoot was done, May had over a million feet of film. And to give you an idea of her comparison, the amount of film she had of Mikey and Nicky was three times the amount of the final cut of Gone with the Wind, and that's a, a nearly a four-hour movie. Because she would basically just leave the camera running, even after a scene was finished, just in case, you know, something happened between Falk and Cassavetes, you know, something spontaneous, something interesting happened that, you know, she thought would work well for the film. So she ended up with just a stupid amount of film to cut. And so, of course, she goes over budget again. She misses the deadline. She spent so long in the cutting room. I, I've read reports that, that the editing process alone took a couple years. But in any case, I don't know the exact number. But the point being, the film took so long to make that by the time Paramount actually ended up taking the film from her, Peter Falk and Cassavetes had worked together again. Cassavetes had directed Falk and a Woman Under the Influence and put it out. So they had shot and completed an entire new film before May was even finished with Mikey and Nikki. And ultimately, a legal battle ensued between Paramount and May. 
Paramount ended up taking control of the film. May apparently, this has also become the stuff of legend, apparently rumor has it that she had hid a few reels of the film in a friend's house so that Paramount couldn't get to them and so that they wouldn't take the film from her and, you know, cut it their way. But ultimately, at the end of this legal battle, Paramount ended up taking the film from May. They put together some sloppy piece of shit cut and they basically fulfilled the bare minimum of their contractual obligations. They put the film out. It was only out for a few days, I think. And it was an awful cut. The critics shat all over it. So they they all but buried it, essentially. I think probably what happened is is that it was... I, I, I should have just said, hey, this is a sad, dark movie that no one will enjoy, and you want to do it. But no, we, uh, we got names, and it seemed to have a few jokes, and the guy who... And there was a lot of politics involved, and it could just be me, because I've had trouble with almost every movie I've done. I had trouble with The New Leaf. They took a murder out of it, because I wanted to do the first comedy in which someone got away with murder. I had trouble with Mikey and Nikki. I, I didn't have trouble with Heartbreak Kid, because I was hired for it. But with every movie that I've done, I, I may just be a pain in the ass. And luckily... Some years after it came out, the rights were acquired, and a cut of the film that was approved by May herself ended up getting released in the 80s. So luckily, the film did get a second life, and it's come to be much more appreciated in, uh, in the years that followed, luckily, as is the case with pretty much all of May's films. Uh, but unfortunately, as a result of this disastrous experience, May wouldn't direct another film for over 10 years. But of course, being a woman of many talents that she, that she was, she kept getting work as an actress and as a screenwriter. She worked primarily as a writer through the 70s and 80s. Um, she ended up working with Warren Beatty on Heaven Can Wait, which came out in 1978. Warren Beatty had approached her to do some work on the script. The script ended up getting credited to the both of them. The film was a huge sensation. And it's a dynamite cast. I mean, Warren Beatty's the star. You know my feelings about Warren Beatty. But Julie Christie is in it. Jack Warden. Charles Grodin shows up in this film as well. Got nominated for a ton of awards. And this actually got Elaine May her first Oscar nomination. She and Beatty got nominated for the screenplay. And that same year in 1978, she and Walter Matthau reunited with Neil Simon as well for a film called California Suite. Simon wrote the script. It was directed by Herbert Ross. And uh, May and Matthau play husband and wife in this yet again. And it's a great film, too, with uh, Jane Fonda, Alan Alda, Herb Edelman, Richard Pryor, Michael Caine, Maggie Smith. Fantastic cast. And in 1980, she went back to the stage and her former comedy partner, she and Mike Nichols, reunited and they starred in a stage production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the wonderful Edward Albee play, which uh, they staged in Connecticut. And in the 80s as well, she kept on working on scripts. A lot of her writing work was uncredited in the 80s. She worked on the script for Reds, which was another Warren Beatty picture. Uh, and she worked on Tootsie as well, which came out in 1982. Both these films were huge hits in the early 80s, but her work on the f those films wasn't credited. And then she went to sh Chicago in 1983 to uh, direct some plays there. And ultimately, her fourth and final film came out in 1987. And that film was titled Ishtar. And it was Columbia that put this film out. And so this film reunited May with Warren Beatty yet again. Uh, Beatty produced the film, and he stars in it with Dustin Hoffman. The two of them play a talentless songwriting duo. You know, Hal David and Burt Bacharach, they ain't. And they end up taking a shitty gig at a hotel in Morocco which is booked for them by their agent, who's played by Jack Weston. He comes back in this as well. And so the two of them head out to Morocco to play this gig, and it's while they're there that they sort of stumble into a geopolitical conflict that's taking place in the fictional Republic of Ishtar. 
and they encounter a young woman played by Isabella Jani, who's a part of this sort of rebel militia who's trying to overthrow the emir of, uh, of Ishtar, and of course the CIA gets involved, and there's an agent who's played by Charles Grodin, and shenanigans ensue, you understand. And this film is basically inspired by, May's talked about this in interviews, it's basically inspired by the old road films that Bing Crosby and Bob Hope had made, mostly in the 40s, and Dorothy Lamour was in a bunch of them as well. You know, wrote to Singapore, wrote to Morocco, and so on and so forth. It was meant to be a satire. It's, this is the 80s, keep in mind. Uh, Ronald Reagan was president of the United States at this time, and it was basically meant to take the piss or kind of satirize the U.S.'s meddling in the Middle East. When I made this movie, Ronald Reagan was president. And there was Iran-Contra. We were doing this in the middle. We were supporting Iran and Iraq. We put in Saddam. We'd take, taken out the Shah. They, Khomeini was there, and I remember looking at Ronald Reagan and thinking, I, I, this, I'm qualifying this, it was just an idea, I didn't really believe it. I thought, he's from Hollywood, he's a really nice man, it's possible that the only movies he's ever seen about the Middle East are the road movies with Hope and Crosby. <laughs> And I thought I would make that movie. And it's an okay film. Definitely the weakest of Elaine May's four films, for sure. Although the first half is really funny. The best parts of the film, as far as I'm concerned, are before they actually make it to Morocco, where it's basically just going over their struggles, trying to make something happen as a songwriting duo, and it's basically showing just how talentless and clueless they are. The two of them just ain't got it. They're 50-year-old men, they're still plugging away, and there is something respectable, there's something admirable about it, you know, that's sort of... You know, them putting themselves through this sort of struggling artist lifestyle at their age. But at the same time, the only ones who don't know that they're talentless are them, the two of them. Telling the truth can be good news. Telling the truth is a bad idea. Telling the truth is a difficult problem. Telling the truth, telling the truth is a is a scary. Telling the truth is a scary predicament. Telling the truth is a bitter herb. Uh, and ultimately, uh, this film proved to be a shit show production-wise, yet again, this recurring theme in May's career. How this began was Warren Beatty, who, like I said, produced Ishtar. He was grateful to May for the work that she had done on Heaven Can Wait and Reds. And, of course, he knew of the clashes that May had had in the, with the studio system when she was working as a director in the 70s. So the story goes that Beatty basically wanted to do her solid and that he would agree to produce any film that she wanted to write and direct and that unlike the producers that she had worked with in the past, Beatty would basically give her the leeway and the creative freedom to do whatever she wanted and he wouldn't get in her way. That was the agreement. So they start making the film in the mid-80s. They made it for Columbia, like I said. And yet again, for the third time in the four films that May made in her career, there was a regime change in the studio during production. A guy named David Putnam became the head of Columbia during the making of Ishtar. And like I said before, changes in regimes during the making of films are usually always bad news. And oftentimes when new studio heads step in, the existing productions that started before they got there aren't their babies. So oftentimes the new studio heads don't really get behind projects that had been approved before their arrival. And not only that, Putnam actually basically went out of his way to kill the film before it even was finished. And, of course, there were budget problems with the film. There were reports coming out even before the first shot of the film was done that the budget had already been inflated. The LA Times was putting out stories. The studio themselves, even Putnam himself, was putting out statements in the press. 
And apparently there was talks that the budget had gone from 30-some million to as high as 55 million, although May has disputed this herself. She maintains that the budget remained around 30 million. And so there was all kinds of negative buzz surrounding the film before it had even begun shooting. And then there were other stories that came out of it. Apparently May insisted on shooting the second half of the film in Morocco as opposed to on the Columbia backlot. And of course they made it out to Morocco and there was this whole story that they had gotten to the Moroccan desert and that May didn't like the dunes that, that the location scouts had found and she demanded that the dunes be bulldozed. You know, these ridiculous, ridiculous stories that, that had come from the studio or Lord knows who else during the making of this film. It, it, it was political and it was a satire, but I, it was sort of my secret. And when these articles started coming out that had all these details, I thought, only for five minutes, I thought, it's the CIA. I, I, I thought nobody, I didn't, I didn't dream that it would be the studio. And for one moment, it was sort of glorious to think that I was going to be, you know, taken down by the CIA, and then it turned out to be David Putnam. And so long story short, this film was being buried in the press before it was even completed. And so the press and the studio basically had it out for, for Beatty and May and just the entire production. And... You know, a lot of people lampooned it that is, a, you know, another example of just, you know, masturbatory Hollywood excess. And Beatty took a lot of shit for it because, of course, he was the producer. And, you know, a lot of people blamed the budget getting inflated on him because he didn't, you know, try to rein May in. And a lot of people said that, you know, May was incapable of handling a large production. A friend of mine called today and said, I, I read a story that when you made Ishtar, you got to the desert and you said, what are those hills? And they said dunes. And you said, flatten them. And I said to him, well, do you believe that? And there was a long pause and he said, well, no, but it's such a great story. <laughs> and it's sort of, a, it's like that it makes it hard to do a movie because you think, what can I possibly choose? When, when people can so irresponsibly say anything, when there's this show where, where people will do anything, where actually there is nothing there's no, there's no, nobody's ashamed of anything. You're just lucky to get it on television, your, whatever this repression is. It is hard to find a theme. It's really hard to find something and to say it in a way that will get people's attention. So I, I have no idea. And Putnam himself came out and said that he would not get behind the film. He refused to see it. And when the film finally came out, the critics shat all over it. Some of them even called it one of the worst films ever made. The film had a decent opening weekend, but not very many people went to see it after that. And reportedly, the film netted a loss of $40 million, but that's if the $55 million budget figure is correct. Like I said, May said it was $30 million. All this to say, the making of this film was a total fucking shit show. And they started making the film in 1985. It came out in 1987. And ultimately, between the gossip and the stories in the press that began before shooting and the release and the disastrous reviews. Ishtar basically killed May's chances of directing another Hollywood film, and she hasn't. It's the last film she ever made as a director. Although, like, again, another recurring theme in May's work, uh, the public opinion of this film has improved greatly over the years, to the point where some critics have even called it like a slept-on work of genius. That's a little much. But it does have its merits, you know, with the, the satire and the political commentary. And like I said, the film is very funny, especially early on, where you're just watching this terrible duo trying to put a song together and, and get their act together and book a gig. 
And of course, their their relationships go to shit. Their significant others leave them. But then, of course, they get to Morocco, and then you know they 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 stumble into this whole geopolitical conflict, and the shenanigans ensue. And then they basically just become ancillary characters in a story that's that's much bigger than they are. Uh, so it's a decent film. It was much maligned when it came out, and unjustly so, I would say. Let's talk about the cast. So Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty are the two songwriters. And you know what? That's that's another great thing about this film that I forgot to mention. One great thing that it has going for it is that you're watching Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty play against type. You have Dustin Hoffman, who is the alpha male of the duo. Um, (laughs) And, you know, he's the man of action. And on the other side of that, you have Warren Beatty, who had a reputation. I mean, he was... He was a ladies' man in real life. He was a notorious playboy. You know, he's the he's the more sort of the classic alpha male of the two. But in this film, he's basically just the dim-witted second banana. So it's great to see them just these different turns from these two actors in this film. And and the two of them really are a good duo. They're pretty fucking funny together, I gotta say. Isabella Jani, who is an incredible beauty. Just a stunning woman and a wonderful actress. She was in uh, L'Histoire d'Adèle Ash. She got nominated for an Oscar for it in 1975. She was in The Tenant, the Roman Polanski film as well. She was in Camille Claudel. Uh, a wonderful French act- actress who had a great career, and she plays the uh, the rebel in Ishtar, who crosses paths with, with these two songwriters when they arrive in Morocco. Uh, Charles Grodin plays the CIA agent who um, tries to enlist Dustin Hoffman to act as an informant for him while they're in Morocco, and then he ends up betraying the duo, and he has ties to the to the emir that the rebels are trying to overthrow, and he's you know basically a snake in the grass, and their 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 entire operation goes to shit under his watch. Uh, Jack Weston, like I said before, shows up as the agent. He's only in a couple scenes, but he's the, the booking agent of these two songwriters. It's him who gets them the gig in Morocco. Let me tell you what I told Tony Bennett. Sing songs people already know. That way, if they don't like it, they'll still have something to applaud. Well, we're not singers. No, we're songwriters. So? The Beach Boys were in songwriters? Anthony Newley isn't a songwriter. I mean, if you want to sell songs today, you got to have an act with jokes, patterns, segues. Otherwise, frankly, you're old, you're white, you got no shtick, you got no gimmicks. And you have the great Carol Kane, who's in a ton of great films. The Last Detail, Dog Day Afternoon, Carnal Knowledge, uh, Hester Street, for which he got nominated for an Oscar in 1975. She was an unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt more recently. You might know her from that series. A wonderful, wonderful actress. She plays the significant other to Dustin Hoffman's character in this film. And Tess Harper plays the wife of Warren Beatty's character in this film. And, and both women leave them fairly early on. Tess Harper, by the way, more recently played uh, Pinkman's mom in Breaking Bad. And also, the songs, the musical numbers performed in the film by this duo... Uh, were written with Elaine May by the great Paul Williams, who's an accomplished songwriter himself, and he also shows up in Smokey and the Bandit. And so, like I said, given just how disastrous Ishtar was, and it was it was deemed one of the biggest box office bombs ever, uh, May never directed another film. But she remained busy, and still is. She's going to be 90 next month, and she's been pretty active throughout her entire life, and in the years since Ishtar came out. I mean, she worked with both her daughter Jeannie Berlin and Peter Falk on the film In the Spirit in 1990, which was actually co-written by Jeannie Berlin. She reunited with Mike Nichols again in the 90s. She wrote two scripts for him, and she was credited on both of them, unlike her work in the 80s. Uh, She wrote The Birdcage, the great Mike Nichols comedy with Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, Gene Hackman, Diane Wiest, Hank Azaria. That came out in 1996, and there's some political commentary sprinkled in there as well. Uh, And she also wrote the film Primary Colors, with John Travolta and Emma Thompson. This came out in 98. And it was based on a book that was inspired by uh, Bill Clinton's first campaign in the 1992 uh, presidential election. 
and she got her second nomination for writing that script. So two Oscar nominations over the course of May's career. And she continued writing plays, staging plays, directing them. And in 1998, she starred in a play off-Broadway with her daughter, Anne Allen Arkin. And it was a play that she wrote called Power Plays. And in 2000, she worked on the Woody Allen film Small Time Crooks. She worked with Woody Allen yet again many years later in 2016 on the Amazon limited series Crisis in Six Scenes. In 2018, she went to Broadway as an actress, starred in the Kenneth Lonergan play the Waverly Gallery, this was on Broadway, like I said, and it was at the John Golden Theater, where she and Mike Nichols had performed as a comedy team almost 60 years prior. And Kenneth Lonergan directed Manchester by the Sea and You Can Count on Me, and so this was his play, and Elaine May starred in it with Joan Allen, Lucas Hedges, who was in Manchester by the Sea, and Michael Sarah. And at the 2019 Tonys, Elaine May won a Tony Award for her performance in the play. She played an art gallery owner with Alzheimer's disease in the play. This made her the second oldest actor to win a Tony Award. She was 87 at the time, behind Cicely Tyson, who uh, had won for a trip to Bountiful in 2013 at the age of 88. And although she never directed another film, there were reports in 2019 that she was going to direct a film called Crackpot with Dakota Johnson. Although it doesn't look like anything came of it, and I haven't seen any stories about it since. Uh, and her last directing credit was actually a documentary for American Masters on Mike Nichols, her comedy partner and lifelong friend, because he had died in 2014 in his early 80s. And so May made this TV documentary about him in 2016. And May was also married a third time. In 1964, she had married her therapist, David Rubenfein, and they remained married until 1982 when Rubenfein died. And after that... In the late 90s, she was uh, she began a relationship with Stanley Donen, who had directed On the Town and Singing in the Rain, Charade, had a great career. Um, and the two of them were together for many years until Stanley Donen died in 2019. And now here we are, shortly before this year's Oscars, and Elaine May, at the age of 89, is finally being honored with an Honorary Academy Award for all the work she's done. And one that's long overdue, but like I said, three of her four films did not get the greatest reception when they came out, and they only came to be appreciated many, many years after the fact. And a lot of people love May. They consider her one of the, the most brilliant comic minds of all time. And like I said before, this unique brand of comedy she had where the humor doesn't show up in the quips and the barbs and the dialogue and the, the sort of rhythm in the dialogue between characters. It, much like her work with Mike Nichols when the two of them were a comedy team in her films, a lot, like I said before, and this is, this is especially true of The Heartbreak Kid, a lot of the humor shows up in just human behavior and the discomfort that a lot of the characters feel in these ridiculous, sometimes surreal situations that they put themselves in. And it's interesting... Looking back on her career and these problems that she had with the studio, a lot of people for many years and critics and theorists alike, a lot of them, a lot of them claim that the turn May's career as a director took and these clashes with the studios, a lot of them blame it on sexism. And May, like I said at the at the top of the show, was the only female director working in Hollywood under studios at that time. Of course, many other female directors had come to prominence elsewhere during and before her time. I mean, you had. Agnès Varda, who was a leading figure of the French New Wave. You had Joan Micklin Silver, who, like I said, had directed Hester Street with Carol Kane. Uh, you had Larissa Shapitko in the USSR. So it's May was alone as far as Hollywood was concerned, but there were definitely more female filmmakers during her era than, say, uh, you know, Dorothy Arzner's or Ida Lupino's in the decades preceding her. And to be honest, for for a long time, I, I kind of thought that yeah, sexism was probably part of it when thinking about these problems that she had with the studio brass during the production of her films. 
But then I saw an interview that May and Nichols gave in 2006. She was a very private person, didn't do a lot of press. And she was asked about being a woman working for studios at that time in a male-dominated industry. And she had an interesting assessment of her, of her experience. And here it is. A part of the difficulty in, with the new leaf was that everybody that, I mean, Walter would, Matha, who I came to love, incidentally, would call me Mrs. Hitler and this, that, and the other thing. And I wanted to be, I wanted not to frighten anyone. And so people would leave me saying, she's a nice girl. What is this big thing about it? She's a nice girl. And of course, I wasn't a nice girl. And when they found it out, they hated me all the more. And I think that's what really happens with this. Not that they're women. It's that as women, they think, well, I want to show that I, I'm a nice person. I'm, I'm no one to be feared. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one of those women who are not nice women. And in the end, when, when it comes down to it, you're just as rotten as any guy. You'll fight just as hard and just as, you know, you're going to get your way. And when I went to the screening of Mikey and Nikki at the Royal in, in Toronto a few years back, the group who was putting on the screening, they, they gave a little introduction at the beginning of the film, and the, the woman giving the introduction, her name escapes me, but she had mentioned that a lot of May's problems with the studios and a lot of the damage that came to her career as a result of it was self-inflicted. And I have to agree, just in doing this, the research and finding out just how these films came to be made and all the problems they had, I mean, take Mikey and Nikki for example. If May did in fact spend two, two and a half years in the cutting room, there is no director who can get away with that, man or woman. I mean, you take somebody like Sidney Lumet, who is a prolific and beloved director, uber-talented. Even in 1973, Sidney Lumet was then 16 years into his career as a film director, had made many wonderful films. And in 1973, he made Serpico, which is a classic. And even a guy like Sidney Lumet didn't have final cut privilege when he made Serpico. He was on a very tight deadline. And not only did he make the deadline, he shot it in four months. They went, they used over a hundred locations across four boroughs in New York City, four of the five boroughs. And because they were on such a tight deadline, they basically had to start cutting the film together and editing it as they were shooting it, which is unheard of. Nobody does that. Even a guy as accomplished and as respected as Sidney Lumet had to work on these, this time crunch and under certain conditions and didn't even have the final say on the film that he was putting out. So all this to say that, yes, showbiz is primarily male-dominated, or at least it was then. I can't really speak on what the landscape is like now. But even the male directors, it's not like they had the keys to the place. And even in the 40s, you take a guy like Orson Welles, who was heralded as a wunderkind because of the he made Citizen Kane in his mid-20s. Even he quickly fell out of favor with the studios because, much like Elaine May, he would have budget problems during the making of his films, he'd go over schedule, a couple of his films were taken from him and then recut by the studio. And, and by, I guess, the late 50s, early 60s, he had completely fallen out of favor with the studios, was not a Hollywood director anymore, and was basically hustling various people out of money and shooting what he could with what little money he had a little bit at a time. So all this to say that no one director is immune from the industry's wrath, because Hollywood is a fickle mistress. And even Hal Ashby, who had a string of wonderful films in the 70s, he couldn't miss. The Landlord, Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, Being There. And even he had fallen out of favor with the studios in the 80s. So, and not that May ever cried sexism, but all this to say that no man or woman can basically do whatever they want with impunity within this industry. And at the same time, I greatly respect May for fighting for Final Cut privilege. And I respect her telling the studio to take her name off a new leaf after they basically recut it and took it from her. And it's interesting, it's hard to know what, what the alternative could have been with May as a director, because 
some people say, you know, oh, well, she could have just gone the indie route. And the great thing about independent filmmaking is that you're not beholden to anybody, right? You're not, you don't have a studio that's constantly meddling in your business, which is supposed to be the dream. I may have fucked my life up flattered and hammered shit, but I stand here before you today beholden to no human cocksucker. The last thing you want is some fucking suit or a stuffed shirt telling you how to do your business and putting their paws all over your art, right? But at the same time, independent filmmakers have to work with limited means, and Mae never really learned how to do that, and then even when she made Ishtar, and basically Warren Beatty gave her the respect that she deserved, and basically didn't get in her way and let her pretty much do what she wanted, even then, with a $30 million budget, the film was plagued with problems, even though the studio was responsible for most of them, so... I don't even know if May could have gone the independent route, to be honest. I think I don't think her films could have been made without the means that only a studio can provide. So it's hard to know what to make of her in that sense. And keep in mind, this was also at a time in the early 70s where a lot of great directors were making their own films for cheap through studios. Robert Altman, who made M.A.S.H. and Brewster McCloud and all these other great films in the early 70s. Martin Scorsese making Mean Streets in 1973. So these were filmmakers who worked with studios and were basically making indie productions for, for big studios with limited budgets. And, you know, and, and that era of filmmaking is known as the New Hollywood when the inmates were basically running the asylum. And that's when May was making her films in the early 70s. So looking back on it, I do think that a lot of the damage her career took and a lot of these problems that she encountered during the making of her first films were kind of self-inflicted. And that's not to put her down. This is me just sort of speculating and thinking out loud. I mean, ultimately, what the fuck do I know? But all this to say, and I'll leave it at this, is that you can't keep talent hidden forever. And sure enough, her films are beloved today, all four of them. And May luckily was able to take her talents to other areas and got nominated for two Oscars as a screenwriter, won a Tony Award, like we said, and finally, she's being rightfully rewarded for the sum of her work at this month's Oscars. I don't like to watch award shows, but I am very happy that she's getting an award. Long overdue and well-deserved. And that is where I will leave it. That's all I got for Elaine May. And so before I leave you, I would like to remind you that you can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. Like, subscribe, leave comments, please. Leave us ratings as well or a review. Just to help the podcast rank a little better, I'd like to get some more eyes on it. I am very, very appreciative and grateful for your support. Please keep listening. And remember to follow us on the Instagram at Podcast. And feel free to email us, as per usual, at closedsetpod at gmail.com. And until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. So I think the real trick is, for women and, and where they get caught, is they should, they, they should start out tough. They don't start out tough. They, they start out saying, don't be afraid of me. I'm, I'm only a woman. And they're not only women. They're just as tough as guys. In that way, I think I did have trouble, because, but only because I seemed so pleasant. <laughs> <laughs>